avoiding the, the things that will cost you, that you know will cost you in the long term, then you're avoiding that cost completely. Your opportunity cost is really good. You put a cheap piece of junk in, you know, is going to fail in three years. That's going to cost you money in three years. And are you going to have the NOI? I bet you there's a ton of operators right now wishing they had made better decisions three years ago so they could have an extra six figures, an extra five figures in that property coming in. Wouldn't it be nice to have an extra six figures in NOI coming in that you could predict that you don't have to worry about? This is your daily real estate syndication show. I'm your host, Whitney Sewell. We're back again with our guest today, Andy McCade. He he is a principal, right, at the Arm Companies. You heard him yesterday, I hope anyway. He's going to come back today and we're going to dive even further into this total cost of ownership method that he's come up with, which makes a ton of sense. Again, he's used some examples that are a little bit mind-blowing, right, you know, in thinking through, man, when I make this purchase, what is this really costing me over the life of this deal. You need to know that if you are an operator. We are all trying to increase our efficiencies and ultimately the income of the properties, right? And oftentimes we feel like we have problems that are just our own, that other people are having the same problems. More times than not, that's not the case. I know you heard that in yesterday's show with Andy. We're going to continue the conversation. We're going to learn more from his method, uh, TCO method, and helping you to be more efficient and save those costs so you can improve the value of your property and ultimately do better by your investors, right? So Andy, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Whitney. I appreciate it very much. Yeah. Let's do just that, Andy. Let's try, you know, uh, give us a, 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 you started to do it in yesterday, end of yesterday's segment and, and uh, you know, refresh us. What is TCO? Uh, and let's dive back into what that is, what that does for the operator exactly. Yeah, absolutely. So TCO is total cost of ownership. And it basically looks at everything for whatever you might be buying from the cost of purchase to shipping it to where it needs to be, to installing it, using it, maintaining it and eventually disposing of it. So it can include any of your MRO products, any of your rehab, CapEx materials. It can even include how you look at and purchase properties, Uh, but it's a little bit more top heavy on that because there's a lot of moving parts over the span of time that you might sit on a property, right? To, to, To get into it and try to calculate from day one to year 30, what the total cost is going to be is like looking in a crystal ball, but it doesn't have to be that exact. The point is to make your decisions based on delivering the highest value to your investors, to your business, to your company, to your property, to your tenants over time, as opposed to putting the bandaid on right now and hoping something doesn't go wrong later. Right. So I always make that connection to deferred maintenance where you can do the deferred maintenance thing and it'll increase your NOI for a little while, but whatever you deferred maintenance on is going to cost you a whole lot more later. It's the same kind of thing, but you're putting it into a different context. You know, well, you know, you were giving an example yesterday about uh, the toilet example, right? We talked about the maintenance man and some of that. Is there an example, you know, maybe a few examples like that you could walk us through um, that would help really the listener to think this way, right? Because uh, we don't, right? We just see the purchase of the toilet. We don't think about 
like what you just said, I love how you broke that down. Really, the buying of the using it and the disposing it, and you know the whole process of that. Help us think yeah. through that a little more. Yeah, absolutely. So there's a lot of examples, unfortunately. So the easiest, lowest hanging fruit one that I use for people who are not necessarily in that mindset yet is um, either the toilets or smoke detectors, right? So you've got two smoke detectors in most states. Some states like New York, where I am, you're stuck with just one. You get the 10-year sealed lithium. Maybe it's hardwired, maybe it's not, but you're stuck with the 10-year sealed lithium regardless. You can't buy a battery-operated 9-volt AA in New York State, haven't been able to for years. What you're not seeing is, well, there's three things with smoke detectors, but we're going to get into the, the big one. It's not the purchase price, right? You buy it's not five bucks anymore, but I use five bucks because everybody thinks you buy a smoke detector, it's five bucks. You got to change batteries every year or every six months. And those are like a buck and it is just is what it is. And it's a, and it's a cost of doing business. Well, it doesn't really have to be. You can buy the battery operated one for five bucks and then you're putting a buck or two worth of batteries in a year, but it's not the material cost that's killing you. It's the labor cost for your guys to do that. If you're scattered site, it's ridiculously expensive and it's a ridiculous amount of money. Some people will argue, well, I like having my guys in those units anyway because they can see what's going on. That's true, but you can do a property inspection anyway. And no matter what, your insurance company is going to hold you liable if that smoke detector isn't where it needs to be and isn't working because they took the batteries out, put them in their kids' toys or whatever they did. The batteries aren't working. They put a plastic bag over it. If that thing doesn't function, somebody gets hurt you're going to own it whether you want to or not. It's your job to make sure they're there. So you have to build it for the lowest common denominator. The failure point is always people. So you have these smoke detectors that cost you five bucks, but then every year or every six months, you're spending how much per hour to put a guy in there to test it, change the batteries, put it back up if it's down, find it, replace it. All these crazy things that just happen as a, as a matter of course in doing business. Or you can buy this other one where they can't take the battery out. Maybe they take it down and put it in a drawer. Maybe they put a bag over it, whatever that happens to be. But your maintenance cost is no longer batteries every six months to, to two years and a guy in that unit twice a year or once a year testing it. The other thing that is a risk management play on this is you're going to avoid them removing the batteries and putting them in their kids' toys or just removing the batteries, period, because once they're on, you can't turn them off. You're also going to make sure that when that thing hits 10 years, you're throwing it in the garbage. And well, why is that a good thing? Well, it's, it's really simple. They stop working reliably at 10 years. The reason they beep when there's smoke is because of a radioactive isotope that detects the smoke. So when that radioactive isotope hits a half-life of whatever that happens to be, when it hits that 10-year point, they're not reliable anymore. So you've got a 50-50 chance or less that it's going to work in the case of a fire. There's a reason why there's a dispose of date on the back of every one of these or a manufacture date that says once it hits 10 years past this, you need to throw it in the garbage. There's so many units still that I walk when I'm doing due diligence and I'll pull orange smoke detectors off the wall and they're from like 1996, 1982. <laughs> they haven't worked reliably in probably decades, but they're still there and people are still pushing the button and they still beep. Well, yeah, because the button works, the speaker works and the battery's working. That's the only reason it beeps, guys. There's a fire. It's not going off. 
Yeah. Nobody realizes that. So there's a bunch of things there. But the reality is you're going to spend more over the 10 years that that smoke detector is alive, assuming you're throwing it away after 10 years. You're going to spend more changing batteries and putting a guy in that unit every six months or a year, whatever. It doesn't matter. Think about how much per hour you pay your guys. Total comp, not looking. And this is what I, I briefly mentioned yesterday, process costing, right? So your process cost to put that guy in there has to include his total comp, his unemployment insurance, his you know, social security that you're putting 7% towards, all of the benefits you give him, 401k match, all of that stuff. Does he have a truck? Does he have tools? Does he have a laptop? Do you give him a phone, an iPad? All that stuff goes into his total comp. It goes into his calculation, how you should be looking at what that process costs you. By the time it's all said and done, you're paying somebody or the company is paying maybe 100 bucks for him to go into that unit and push that button and change those batteries. Is it worth just putting the thing in there? You don't really have to worry about that starts beeping like crazy when it's time to go out in the garbage. Because I guarantee you the $12 to $15 10-year sealed smoke detector is going to cost you less in the long run because 100% of the time it's true. No doubt about it. That's a great example right there. It's just like the toilet or, or the smoke detector. It's the, what does that maintenance man's time cost you? And think about it. You got 200 units, right? <laughs> you said mm-hmm. two, two per unit. I was even thinking on the, uh, you know, outside of the cost of the maintenance man, but just the interruption to the tenant as well. Right. And Absolutely. and now now we're including our our staff, our office staff, right? Having to connect with the the tenants, every one of the 200 tenants to say, hey, our maintenance men are coming around. Well, oh, now they can't get in the unit, or now we got to come back again tomorrow, or right, all that back and or, forth right. that you are paying your staff for uh, that they're having to get done, right? It is important. Um, but that maybe there's a better way, right? By spending five or seven more bucks or whatever it is. Uh, in the very beginning um, that that you wouldn't think of. And, and I was thinking about, you know, you mentioned in the last segment too, or you briefly mentioned, I was going to let you elaborate now too on just improving efficiencies, right? And that's a major efficiency that's improved right there. Your maintenance man can then focus on bigger things. Your office staff's focused on bigger things, more important things, right? Any other ways that that, you know, this is helping improve efficiencies that maybe we hadn't talked about, Andy? Yeah, so there's a ton of money lost every year in dumb stuff, right? Like going and changing batteries for one of them, changing flappers because it's a predictable expense. They last three to five years and then you're going to have a leak, assuming you get a call, right? Sometimes they just let the stupid toilet run indefinitely and then you wonder why you're getting a massive water bill if you're in a town that actually bills you for the water that's being used, not just a flat fee per door, right? There's there's areas that do both. Um, But windshield time. How much time are your guys spending driving places to get stuff, to fix stuff because they don't have it. They don't plan ahead. They don't know what they need. They're not tracking stuff in their systems, right? Most of the big operations are using, you know, like a, an app folio or Yardi or one site or whatever, right? There's a billion of them out there. Everybody has their own thing. Some of them have inventory trackers. Some of them have the ability to take your maintenance, log what's being used, log the inventory that's being used, deliver an exact dollar amount so you're not pushing into you know, budgetary limits because you're actually seeing what stuff is costing you every single time you do it. And if you're doing a process costing thing, you know what it costs when a maintenance call comes in and your, your front desk has to then take that call and enter it into whatever system you're using if you're using a system. 
what it takes to, to get that to the maintenance person's hands so that they can go process that, whether they're using, you know, the, the walk up and pick up a piece of paper, which I see all the time still, or whether they're getting it pushed to their phone or their iPad by Yardy or, you know, whatever. All of these things can be tracked. You can start to build a process and, and predict what you need. The worst thing that you can have other than a maintenance shop on site that's overloaded with stuff is a empty one. These systems give you the visibility, the ability to predict what's going to happen. You need to use it in a way that supports it so that your inventory isn't taking more of your money, but also so your guys aren't using windshield time or delaying completing that repair in a timely fashion because they have to, because of corporate policies, buy it online and wait for it to show up. Whether it's coming from Amazon, whether it's coming from HD Supply or, or Lowe's, whatever the heck they're calling their thing now, third name in five years, I don't even know. But all of that stuff takes time. Whether they're getting in a truck and going to get it, it gets them out of that, that tenant's apartment and puts them somewhere else that, where they're not making money. All they're doing is costing you money. They're shopping, drinking coffee, talking to whatever. You're just lighting money on fire. It's the same thing if they go to a unit, they don't have what they need on site or you know, in their, their bag, their work bag, whatever it is. They're already there and now they have to go and come back another day. None of that helps anybody, especially if it's a catastrophic thing where, God forbid, you have to shut off the water to a unit for more than a day or whatever it may be. All you're doing is lighting money on fire. Predict and have answers for it. Standardize everything. Efficiency sounds like it's really easy. The change management part of getting efficient is not easy. It is extremely difficult to get buy-in. And we incentivize our employees in this industry to do things slowly and mm. inefficiently. We don't reward them for being a top performer in most cases, right? We're paying them hourly. We don't hold them accountable necessarily outside of the, like there is no carrot. It's just the stick. Like if they don't complete something, right? Their time to repair is too long based on whatever magic number you've come up with. They get the stick, but what's the carrot? How are you incentivizing them to excel? What are you doing for them that's going to make them want to do things efficiently? And that's where the change management thing always falls apart is we want them to be more efficient. We want them to do things the right way. We want to standardize and minimize costs, but we don't build the system at the level it needs to, to account for the people that are actually responsible for executing that. And it's, and it's chaos, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah, it is chaos often. And I, I just appreciate the, just the push to think differently, right, about all these things. Uh, are there, and, and we don't have time to talk about every one of them in detail, no doubt about it, Andy. Uh, but are there maybe a couple other items that are purchased often that are are purchased incorrectly that you see? You know, you, you mentioned the smoke detectors, the toilets. I mean, that's great examples, no doubt about it, because we may buy you know, a few hundred at a time, right? I mean, it's a big deal. Uh, and so are there a few other things just to list off a few that you know people are making, you know, the, wrong, the mistake, right? Purchasing the wrong type of something uh, that would just help them, uh, you know, right now? Absolutely. So uh, another big one that I see that I try to in initially get people to realize is costing them a, a lot more money and it's significant 
is all these LED integrated fixtures, right? You go to a Home Depot, you go to a Lowe's, nothing takes light bulbs anymore. 90% of the things that are out there are these LED integrated panels. Well, the problem is if you're going to a Home Depot, a Lowe's, even most of the mom and pops, they're coming from a Chinese factory and production quality is whatever, right? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, but there's two parts to it that you need to think about. One is these things are advertised as having a useful life, right? On the side of 10,000, 25,000 or 50,000 hours. It sounds like a long time, except you have to realize that that's the way they scale that. The industry standard is that you turn it on once and leave it on for three hours and then turn it off and don't touch it again for 24 hours. That's how that calculation is made. And it counts as 24 hours, not three hours. No, they count it as 24. They count it as three hours. But here's where the trick comes in. The more often you flick the light on and off, the faster it dies. How many people just turn a light on and just leave it on? Right? I'm not talking common areas. I'm just talking about how long, how, how often do they just turn it on and leave it on? Or do they turn it off when they walk out of the room because they think they're saving electricity? The LED that actually lights up never dies. Very, very rarely outside of an electrical issue where there's like a short or a fire or something, do those things die. The part that dies is the driver that steps down the 120 coming through the wall to 12 volts and feeds it to that, to that LED filament. Almost none of the LED integrated fixtures on the market have a replaceable driver pack. You could get an LED fixture to last for 40 years if you could replace the driver packs, but you can't. So what you're doing is on average, these things last somewhere between three and say seven years on the, the really good side, assuming everything goes right. So do you have a capital expenditure in your budget to replace all of the light fixtures in your property every three to seven years? That you're, you're assuming that are going to last long after you've sold it. Correct. Is that something you can do? The other thing is, have you tried to find a light fixture that you purchased even three years ago that matches exactly what you're looking for? And then, do you buy light bulbs for your tenants and give them to them every time one goes out? Or do you make them responsible for light bulbs where they're, where they're in your units? Because when you put an LED integrated fixture in, you're taking that responsibility as, a, as an owner, as a property manager, that you're going to fix that light from here out. Maybe your guys are good at doing electrical. Maybe they're not. But if you have to hire an electrician for some reason to come in and do that, it's going to cost you a lot more than that fixture. And it creates a lot more waste because now you've got this huge piece of whatever, plastic, mercury-laden, silica, all the you know silver, gold, platinum, whatever they're using inside that fixture, that's all electronics. You have to recycle it. And that costs money. So now you've gone from having a, a light bulb that you can just unscrew and throw away and, oh, it's your tenant's problem to a capital expenditure where you're going to ruin your curb appeal because you can't get the same exact unit when it dies. And now you're on the hook to replace that every time something goes sideways versus a light bulb. 
So where's the disconnect? And, and everybody at like Home Depot and Lowe's and all these other places are going, oh my God, he's ruining my business. Well, yeah, I am because it's actually one of those places where people light money on fire and the industry wants them to because it costs how much more than a couple of light bulbs yeah. to buy That's, those units. Such a good example. Uh, it's such a good example. I was thinking about, I mean, the uh, the comment of, you know, the the tenant replacing the light bulbs versus you now being responsible and then even just to put icing on the cake. I mean, having to hire an electrician to come do it versus, you know, you being able to screw a bulb in or, or the better yet, the tenant screwing the bulb in. Right. I, I mean, and my thought about you talked about it's, you know, the more it's flickered on and off, right. The, the, you know, the shorter the lifespan, my, my first thought there was, are there kids? Like, yeah. Yeah. Kids, you know, it's like, absolutely. On off, on off, on you know, just like all day long, right? Or or maybe off, you know. Uh, but uh, but uh, you know, lots of that. Anyway, that that's such a good example, Andy. And thinking through the life, uh, you know, of of that product, uh, you know, of that thing that you're buying. But better yet, do you have the the long term goal in mind when you're buying this product? Because uh, it would seem. It just seems like the the right thing to do in the moment, right? To replace all the bulbs with LEDs. It's the uh, they last forever, quote, right? You know, supposedly, um, and we won't have to worry about it again. But I think it's a great example, uh, Andy. We're gonna move to a few final questions, uh, and because I think I think man, that's just a great example, and I hope the listeners are are really thinking about this TCO method, right? This total cost of ownership. Uh, and, uh, you know, and are potentially, you know, thinking about, hey, I, you know, I should talk to Andy about what we are buying right now or as we're renovating all these units, it could save you so much money, right? Uh, and, and long, especially over the life of the deal. Uh, Andy, you know, what about, what's your best advice for, say, passive investors right now? Any thoughts on that? Uh, I know you're focused on the operator, but still, I just love your thoughts. Um, I do a lot with operators, obviously. And every passive investor has an operator doing something somewhere. And the one piece of advice that I can give you is vet your team. Make sure that they're transparent and that the, everything makes sense. It has, the numbers have to work. The numbers have to make sense. And right now it's tough because a lot of deals just don't pencil when you look at it from a making sense standpoint. But there's still stuff out there, especially in value add, where you can get in on something and make really good returns. The trick is that you got to have the right team, the right operators, the right experience who know what they're doing and aren't just FOMOing to get a deal done and, and get that acquisition money. You need them in the, in the game for the success of the project. And that's going to be the differentiator for you, whether you're going to profit or whether you're going to have capital calls and distribution pauses, right? That's that's the, what's happening right now. And we're going to see more of it next year as one point, however many trillion dollars worth of commercial loans come due. Like it's not going to be easy and doing things well and doing things the right way is really going to be the key that, 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 separates the wheat from the chaff, right? The rising tide lifts all ships, cheap money. I let a lot of operators do things that they really shouldn't have been doing that weren't good long-term sustainable business practices. And now the tide is going out. We're going to see a lot of ships beached and yeah. it's it's going to hurt a lot of people. That's just reality. But you can avoid all those issues. Just do a little bit of due diligence. Andy, what's 
What's some of the most important metrics that you track? It could be personally or, or professionally. Anything that stands out to you that's important to track? So I like, it, you know, specific to what I do on the TCO method, I have people track time to repair, track process costing, which almost nobody does unless they're getting purchased, right? M&A, is, it's part of, of what you do when you're buying or selling a business is what is everything you're doing cost? How are we going to make this better? How can we make more money off of this? Nobody really knows in, in real estate property management what process costing looks like. You need to look at it in the same, the same window that a manufacturer looks at it, right? What's your, your total cost in for everything? The, the, the space that you're in, the electricity that's being used, what's your labor cost? Not just what are you paying them hourly? What's their total comp look like? What is all the equipment and stuff to, to support those people costing you? And then put a price on it for what that person does. And then include opportunity cost. Opportunity cost is half of the TCO method because it's not always about the cheapest price today. It's about what costs are you going to avoid in the future because of changing what you do, yeah. right? It's easy to go to your vendor and get better terms, get better pricing, get better service. It's really hard to go to your vendor and get a guarantee of what they're going to do for you six months, a year, two years from now from a price standpoint, because they're not willing to lock that in and commit. So how do you predict that? Well, you predict that by avoiding the, the things that will cost you, that you know will cost you in the long term. Then you're avoiding that cost completely. Your opportunity cost is really good. You put it cheap piece of junk and you know is going to fail in three years, that's going to cost you money in three years. And are you going to have the NOI? I bet you there's a ton of operators right now wishing they had made better decisions three years ago so they could have an extra six figures, an extra five figures in that property coming in that they wouldn't have actually had in their NOI otherwise. I mean, when you can get an insurance yeah. increase that just evaporates millions of dollars in value from your portfolio out of nowhere overnight, wouldn't it be nice to have an extra six figures in NOI? coming in that you could predict that you don't have to worry about? If you had thought about it three years ago, right? Or two years yeah. ago, right? Uh, instead of it going out right now to replace those all those light bulbs <laughs> or toilets or whatever. Uh, Andy, what would you say is the number one thing that's contributed to your success? Um, my ADHD. <laughs> I hate to say it that way, but it's true. Um, being able to hyper-focus and just absorb a lot of information and a lot of technical stuff. Like people will look at me, I'll spit stuff out that I learned, you know, 15 years ago, working on, you know, when I was selling lumber for a lumberyard as an outside sales guy, that people just don't know on the, the multifamily operation side. And I just feel like, no, it's got to be like this because of point loads and all this other crap. And I'll be like, what? Why do you know that? It's like, well, that was my world for, you know, 10 or 12 years in my prior career before I was working with multifamily. So I know that stuff. The, my my penchant to absorb information and and I like strategy, right? I don't like just doing things. I like to understand it, how it works and why and what the goal is. And then you just put those pieces together and, and figure it out. And sometimes it takes time and sometimes it takes more research than others. But once the answer is there, it usually works unless something in the market changes. So it's it's really weird to say, but I wouldn't be where I am now if I didn't have the ADHD and I had to develop all this stuff. I wasn't medicated. I still am not. And 
I didn't find out I had it until I was 40, but my whole life made sense once my son was diagnosed. So, you know, it kind of, I, I put that there, but the other side of it is that I had really, real estate is awesome because I had really good mentors and really good business partners and really good customers who were willing to answer my really strange questions about why they did the things they did and how they were thinking about stuff and what the end goal was. They taught me what the priorities were as a sales guy. And I just tailored what I did for them into that bucket. If it wasn't for real estate, I don't know what I'd be doing. Like I started working with builders and developers when I was 17 years old, driving a forklift. Right. That, I mean, that was the beginning of my career. And now yeah, I'm, that's interesting, Andy. Uh, attention to detail is uh, is important. That's <laughs> a gift for sure. I, I could use a little more of that uh, at times <laughs> uh, for sure. Well, Andy, how do you like to give back? So I do a couple of things. One is I'm really involved with the local RIA. Um, and I just like to see people starting their journey and taking off and and trying to figure things out. And, you know, not a lot of what I do applies to anybody in the RIA. I just, I, I, I they taught me a lot about the industry too, as when I was going there as a sales rep, but really I do um, some pro bono work. I try to do one or two projects a year for uh, veterans homes and, or uh, homes for people with developmental disabilities, because there's always a property management operation behind those, right? I don't get involved in the actual caregiving side, but a lot of these organizations, especially here in New York, they have an arm that owns those properties, that does that maintenance, that does all yeah. of this stuff to maintain these spaces for for veterans and for for just people who have things going on, whether it's from a car accident or whatever. So like I have my certification in aging in place from the home builders. I can go in and I can do an accessibility uh, analysis to see if there's trip and fall hazards and to make sure that, you know, they're meeting the local codes and all that craziness that, you know, people's eyes glaze over when you talk about, but it's really important because very few homes, especially in an older aged out market, like New England, the Northeast, uh, you know, even even some areas in the South, they're not built with accessibility in mind. There's nothing there for yeah. them. And there there's ways they can do things and combine stuff from the TCO method and combine stuff from, you know, the the aging in place standards or universal design or whatever you want to call it, where it helps move the needle for them from profit, from a risk management, from a compliance, et cetera, et cetera, standpoint that they don't have people on staff to do, or if they have somebody, they're usually spread too thin because if they could have done it before I got there, they would have. Right. I'm sure they're buying the cheapest smoke detectors more times than not. <laughs> Where it's legal. <laughs> right. Where it's legal, there is some of that for sure. <laughs> Andy, a pleasure to meet you and have you on the show. I appreciate your generosity uh, with your time and and doing a couple segments with us. Uh, and, and I just hope the listener took away a lot. Uh, and just even these uh, examples that you've given uh, in this last segment too. I, I just Hope that helps change the way they look at buying anything, right? Uh, and no doubt, it, it has myself, uh, even thinking about myself at home, right? You know, too, as we buy stuff or think about, you know, what's the best purchase here? Um, you know, spending a few more dollars now or a lot more dollars, you know, over the next few years. Uh, Andy, how can the listeners get in touch with you and learn more about you? 
Absolutely. Um, I do a lot on LinkedIn. That's my social media platform of choice. Uh, you can always reach out, connect me, connect with me on the platform. You can hit my website at annymcquade.com. There's a bunch of stuff about me there and other stuff that I've done outside of just the TCO method and, and building materials and real estate and whatever. And you can always just drop me an email. I'm on Instagram. I'm on Twitter. Uh, emails andy at andymcquade.com. If you want to shoot me a note, feel free. Uh, I respond to everything I get. So uh, I just appreciate the time, Whitney. It's been great. Thank you for being with us again today. I hope that you have learned a lot from the show. Don't forget to like and subscribe. I hope you're telling your friends about the Real Estate Syndication Show and how they can also build wealth in real estate. You can also go to lifebridgecapital.com and start investing today. 